Dotnet Rocks episode 965 with guest Yu Jones. Recorded live Tuesday, April 1st, 2014. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, developing the next generation of apps for touch, motion, gesture, and sensor input. Online at franklins.net. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl and Richard, and we're here again. Indeed, indeed. Hey, what's up, my friend? Well, the first week of doing three shows in a week, and uh, it's been fun. It certainly has. I have been, uh, I've been having fun just going out and finding some new things on the internet that I haven't, uh, that I don't usually go look for. And, uh, so in Better Know a Framework this week, I think you're going to be interested in this little project. Well, then play the music. Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, buddy, what do you got? Go to tinyurl.com slash no-code-programming. Now, I'm not usually a fan of... Yeah, is this the great lie? Yeah, I know. I'm not usually a fan of things. But, you know, anytime somebody thinks through a problem like this and comes up with an alternate way to think of something, Mm -hmm. it's worth looking at. So, this is PWCT, Programming Without Coding Technology. And while it says create software without writing a single line of code... Take a look at the screenshot. Yeah, it looks like code. It looks like code, man. Yeah, and right down, I think the fourth paragraph, it says, the language is called Supernova. Yeah. But, okay. you know, it's, while I, it looks a lot like English, it does look like syntax that yeah. has to be adhered to. So, um, you know, while I like the, the tree idea, uh, you know, and, and however, I am going to reserve judgment. Sure. Until I download it and check it out. Okay. Because it does look interesting to me. So, just generally, this is what uh, I'm going to read it. PWCT is not a wizard for creating your application in one, two, three steps. It is a general purpose visual programming tool designed for novice and expert programmers. A novice programmer can use PWCT to learn programming concepts like data structures, control structure, programming paradigm, etc., and an expert can use it to develop large and or complex software. So, there you go. Um, I, think it's, I think it's interesting enough to download and check out. That's, that's cool, man. I mean, and I would immediately put it beside something like Light Switch and go, okay. Yeah, know, what's well, here? this looks like a, a much smaller project, right? I guess. Yeah. All right. Let's, I mean, it's, and it's open source, too. It right? is open source, yeah. Go for it. So, it's, it's pretty cool. Interesting. Take a All look. Right. That's fine. Go. Yeah. No, learn, love it. Hey, man, who's talking to us? I grabbed a comment off of show 948, and that is the one we did with Mr. Zuck when we were talking about software patents. Mm-hmm. And this comment comes from William, and you're going to enjoy this story. I consider myself an amateur in the area of patents. I have applied for multiple, received one, attempted to work around one, and been the recipient of an infringement lawsuit. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, there you go. It's like, ah, dude, you've got some experiences here. It was my understanding that the primary purpose of the U.S. patent system was to foster innovation by publishing information about inventions so that others could build upon them while also protecting the inventor from unscrupulous actors. If that is the case, then the biggest problem with software patents, and yes, I know there are process patents, is that there is no description of the invention. A software patent should come with the code. You should have to provide it in four different programming languages. I should have been required to do that for my patent. You should be able to take my patent and reproduce the invention in a straightforward manner. Instead, software patents are vague, and the only thing that they're useful for is suing someone later. Hmm. I like the lawyer that I interacted with to get my patent, but it seems that lawyers have the primary goal of making the patent as broad as possible. Of course. While I do understand the logic behind that, maximizing the potential upside, it skews the system and constructs an environment that requires additional lawyers to decide the scope of the patent after it has already been issued, and that makes me crazy. Yep. I don't know that I necessarily agree with this, because the other side of this is, if you make your patent super narrow and someone you still feel is infringing on it, they can use that narrowness to say, no, no, we're different. You know, if they've clearly taken your idea... 
and just made a tiny change to it, you know, without actually adding to it in any way, that still should be an infringement. I think broadening is a way to try and catch that. He goes on to say, I'm particularly disillusioned with the system after being involved on the receiving end of a patent lawsuit where the, quote, software patent is owned by a guy who is a patent lawyer and never wrote a code in his life. Maybe I should open a law practice. Hmm. And William, I'm, I don't disagree with you here. This whole side of the patent situation also is this idea that you don't have to build it to file a patent. It's just filing on the on the concept, right? So maybe there is no code written. What if the idea you had was so complex that you couldn't make code that would even make it work? And unfortunately, for better or worse, and I don't disagree with this either. Like we're software people and we tend to say, you know, don't talk about it, build it. Right. Show me the code. Everything else is crap. But that's really not what the patent system was intended for in the first place. You know, this it is an arcane system that never was prepared for this idea that we would be able to create so quickly so many complex things that and often be in a situation where the law is just scrambling to try and understand what we've done. Uh, and it's interesting that the week that we're recording this, the, the first week of April, the Supreme Court is literally hearing about uh, some challenges towards software patents that could end up having it fundamentally changed. And and I'm wondering, you know, patent reform is another one of those third rail topics. Everybody gets really jumpy about it. But uh, clearly, something needs to be done. Especially you, Richard Campbell. <laughs> <laughs> well, because I've been involved in filing several and 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 have dealt with a number of legal issues around them. Like it's, I'm with William. It's not fun. No. So William, thanks so much for your comment. And uh, certainly it's a a topic near and dear to our hearts and and something we need to talk about more often. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or any of our mobile apps. We've got them for Android, iOS, Windows Phone 7 and 8, and Windows 8. And those apps were built by Diatom Enterprises. We'd love to build you an app. Just go to DiatomEnterprises.com. And before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online with hundreds of hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs, industry experts, .NET Rocks guests. And they release a still releasing over 40 new training courses every month and offer a free 10-day trial with a wide range of topics, including iOS, Java, Android, web development, and pretty much everything and anything on the Microsoft stack. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And that brings us to our guest. Hugh Jones is a senior partner at Cytorus, an independent data protection consultant. Cytorus works with organizations to help them achieve and maintain compliance with the European data protection legislation. Hugh facilitates projects to design and deploy appropriate policies and procedures in relation to information security, data quality, and records retention, and regularly conducts maturity assessments and process evaluations with member organizations. Hugh can be contacted online at Cytorus.com. Welcome, Hugh. Hi, guys. How are you doing? Great to be here. Great to have you. Um, so... Uh, you know, when I was speaking with my friend Christian Weyer, uh in Germany the other day, I said, what does NSA mean to you? And he said, no security anymore. <laughs> does, it, does that strike a chord with you, sir? Yeah, we, we refer to the NSA as the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> <laughs> Not only have they done so much for U.S. security, but they've also done a hell of a lot for data protection awareness over here in Europe, because they've... Uh, Nobody was naive enough to know that or to think that this level of uh, of oversight or this level of monitoring wasn't happening somewhere. But uh, I suppose the extent to which it was acknowledged and the extent to which it was ex- uh, disclosed was both um, was both an eye opener and also was very sobering for a lot of organizations. I just found out that the NSA had infiltrated RSA. To uh, in, in a, to a, a level that previously was unknown, such that one of their core data protection algorithms was completely false. You know, completely had a loophole that allowed the NSA to crack it. Yeah, and and there's there's anecdotal uh, indications as well that you know we we point the finger. You know, in the same way that. Risks are things that happen to other people or that, that we're worried about happening to other people. So we point the finger very quickly and say, you know, there's, there's stories about 
you know, software developers from certain countries that build little Trojan horses or little backdoor lines of code to allow future snooping or future hacking. And um, to find out that it's been happening on our watch as well by, well, by organizations, uh, allegedly, should I say, by organizations that are effectively, if you, if you pardon the virtual inverted commas, organizations that are on our side. Well, that's just it. How do you protect yourself against some, I mean, I like you said, protecting yourself against an enemy that's clearly defined is one thing, but protecting yourself against your own government agency, how you, you clearly, how do I know when I write a line of code that encrypts data and sends it up to uh, the cloud that, that it's safe? I'm, I don't know. And you know what? They don't have an answer for me, you know? They don't have to have an answer for you. They're not obliged to answer because, let's face it, when, when you're talking data protection, you're talking about a fundamental right, not an absolute right. And that might be a distinction that's lost on people, but what it means is a fundamental right is something we all agree with. We all agree it's a good idea. But the reality is that it has to punch its weight against other legislation uh, that, that may come along from time to time. So if you have a data protection principle, but it's uh, being alongside, for example, an argument around state security or an argument around, you know, anti-terrorist um, programs, then you can imagine that the, the anti-terrorism argument is going to win out uh, every time. Nobody's going to suggest, and I certainly wouldn't be trying to suggest, that, you know, compliance with data protection is worth a single life. That, that's never going to be the case. Right. Um, and, and what I mean by that is that, you know, a certain amount of this is going to have to be taken on trust. If you take a comparison, for example, between the, the uh, surveillance activities of the NSA compared to one or other of the European jurisdictions, all of the European jurisdictions currently comply with the European data protection legislation. And they do have powers available to them to survey and to monitor and to check and to tap funds where necessary. The, the significant difference being that they do so on foot of a warrant or on foot of a, what they call a, a plausible justification, uh, where they get a bench warrant or they get a, a, a judge uh, to give approval, a court approval, to install the, the monitoring. And that was the whole idea here is that you have an in automatic oversight, right? That you have someone with a legal background seeing everything you're doing effectively. Exactly. And, and that the, the ordinary punter in the street can rest easy that, you know, these functions are available, these protocols are in place to prevent willful surveillance or, you know, surveillance 24-7. Um, and, and none of us, I think, would have any objection to that, because we, we say, well, oh, we're doing it for our good so that we can walk the street safely, etc. Um, so there's no objection there. The, the, the difficulty emerging from the, the NSA stories and various stories that have come out anecdotally since then um, has been that, you know, that, that protocol has been missing and that there's a, a culture has developed of 24-7 monitoring just because we can. Well, I also thought the argument was the whole 9-11 Patriot thing that they said that the U.S. government uh, executive basically turned to groups like the NSA and say, make sure that never happens again. And they gave them a blank check and they went wild. Well, you can argue. I mean, I've, I've been over in the States several times since uh, 9-11. And, and, you know, you're, you're confronted pretty much before you get on the plane, you're confronted with the the dividend from that tragedy. And, right. and nobody wants a review of that. Nobody wants a recurrence. So we, we suck it up and we, we accommodate a certain amount of of understanding uh, to prevent a recurrence. You know, so we, we take off our shoes, we take off our belt, we, you know, ditch the bottles of liquids and all the rest of it. And that's perfectly understandable up to a point. But we, we don't want to think that that extends into every phone call, every message, every Facebook comment, every opinion that we express a like or a dislike for. And don't get me wrong. I mean, the Patriot Act 
you know, I, I call it Hollywood, you know, because it has it has achieved this kind of Hollywood status of, you know, all pervasive, but for the right reason. Right. I'm fully aware that here in Ireland, in the UK, in Germany, France, they all have anti-terrorist legislation that uh, allocates and, and pretty much makes possible similar levels of surveillance and similar levels of uh, intrusion, if you want to use that word, um, where justified by the, the appropriate security services. So, you know, the Patriot Act isn't alone in it. What seems to be different is the the, the all-pervasive nature of it and the unjustified nature of it in that every conversation, every email, every transaction, all social media. Well, I'm in no way justifying the Patriot Act, but do you think America is a bigger target than uh, the UK? I certainly do. Of course. Of course. You, you only have to walk down and I had the privilege a couple of weeks ago to, to, to attend a, an event in uh, just off the corner of Wall Street. Right, and and even as you approach Manhattan by air, by sea, by by road, any you can see that not only is it a, a I suppose a virtual um, target from the, uh, the being the, the registered home of so many of the, the social media outlets, the, the uh, traditional media outlets, etc. But again, unfortunately, there there are those very real physical targets as well that the freedom tower, not, not least among them, you know? Well, and also um, a target for terrorists. Justify, like, they don't they don't people. chant death to the UK and Iran, you know? They chant death to America. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? I'm not, I'm not doubting that. I'm not doubting that for a second. But, you know, this, this has become a global issue. It has become a global challenge. And you talk to the Australians, you talk to the Italians, the Spanish. You know, every country has, has suffered to some extent because of this. Right. Um, and, and it's about having a reasonable approach, making available, as, as we say constantly on our training, just because you can doesn't mean you should. I agree. So, we, we you know, the technology is phenomenal, and, and I'll be the last one to criticize her to, uh, to, to be Luddite in, in terms of suggesting that we switch it all off. But there needs to be a measure of proportionality between the degree of, of, uh, of intrusion, albeit necessary, and the degree to which we're we're given, you know, the, the the freedom to live our lives, have our opinions, express ourselves, um, with the very freedoms that legislation like the Patriot Act is installed to to protect. So Obama just recently proposed an uh, NSA uh, phone record um, change. Did you did you follow this? Yeah, we we've, we've been uh, as I say, we we're very grateful to the NSA for their. Um, <laughs> granting uh, Mr. Snowden temporary access to their entire record base right. and, uh, and thereby opening up this, this whole issue of, of uh, privacy or, or lack of privacy or assumed privacy. Um, I know that Obama did, did exercise, but, you know, there, there were some decisions recently in terms of the phone tapping and, and seeking justification before taps have been in place, etc. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not necessarily advocating that because... I know enough people in the in the uh, in that sector, yeah. Who are you know whose whose waking and, and sleeping moments are spent worrying about uh, a reprise or a repeat of nine eleven. Sure. And I'm not for a second going to deprive them of of any uh, technological um, advance or any technological innovation that will make their job easier. My my issue about it is. Now that we have the data, what do we do with it? And what conclusions? Who's in control? Right, and this is what I'm speaking to. So the change, the proposed change, is is that uh, the the Obama administration and the House both have plans to transfer storage of data to private phone companies. I guess there are differences in how they see that, but uh, in other words, the government will not have access to bulk collection and storage of telephone metadata. Do, do you see that as like a political move that means nothing, or is there actually some merit to that move? There's there's merit to the move in terms of the the, the so-called Chinese wall, that it, that it creates a, a spread of responsibility. Right. But to a certain extent, it's it's almost like you know making the fox in charge of the hen house because you're removing at least we thought when when government and and organizations answerable to government were responsible, it removed the commercial 
imperative or the commercial consideration in terms of how that data might be used. What you're creating by, by resolving or partially resolving one issue, you're opening up a whole other challenge in terms of making commercial organizations responsible not only for holding that data, but for resisting the temptation to use it for other purposes that right. would be profitable or that would be hugely commercially um, active. Right. And particularly in a downturn, and we see this every single day with our with our clients, um, it's, that's a very real temptation and one that not every organization is either has the vocabulary or the willpower to resist. So does it require public oversight? You know, the oversight of a group or an organization or a... Um, let's just say, like, you know, the Wikipedia idea, just random citizens that are uh, that have their eye on... I'll be honest with you, as, as the father of school-going children, I'm not in favor of the the, 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 the social, you know, combine our talents and we'll, have, we'll, we'll, we'll understand the world. Mm. Um, Wikipedia is great in principle, but not if you're going to start quoting it in your theories or, yeah. or in your essays or, or in your doctoral thesis. Sure, and, and good luck trying to get a doctoral thesis through if your if your quotes are all from Wikipedia. Yeah, and that's no offense to Wikipedia, it's a no. tremendous resource. But what I'm talking about is proportionality. I'd be much more in favor of, of the kind of Lincoln idea of a coalition of the willing, it's bringing people together who, by their nature or by their attitudes, are exercise or, or express fundamentally divergent views, because they keep each other straight, they keep each other honest. And I think that should be a healthy combination of public and private sector. Yeah. The, because the private sector is notoriously innovative, creative, and on top of its game technologically. The public sector might lack the investment or the budget to be fully up to speed on technology, but it does have the altruistic imperative of looking out for the common good Absolutely. rather than for the commercial profit. And I think a combination of the two would render a, a balancing influence. You're talking about a government that exists for managing data, like the House and the Senate, you know, uh, have checks and balances for making sure that laws happen uh, fairly. You have the same sort of idea. You have, uh, you're, you're really talking about a coalition of divergent interests that come together to make sure that this data is protected fairly. I like that idea. Yeah, I mean... If, if we have it over here, and we look in, in Ireland, if I just give that as an example, and I'm not, you know, I, I don't want to diss anybody here locally that's, that might be listening to this, but if you have a, a democratic structure where the, the, the government in power has such an overwhelming majority that it renders the opposition effectively powerless, they can, they can sound off and they can call for votes, etc. But you know, numerically, they're never going to get anything passed because the the, the balance of power rests with with the incumbent. Mm. Um, so I'm not necessarily suggesting that uh, it, it shouldn't be a token democratic policy. It, what, what I'd be suggesting is a a properly balanced um, coalition I like of it. governance where you'd have cred- credible expertise. And, you know, a fundamental thing, we see this all the time here as well as over, I'm sure, on your side of the water, and that is that the public sector, the public bodies who are trying to enforce and police and protect us are at a complete disadvantage in terms of spend and budget and, and resources so that they're, they're playing catch-up with the, with the very individuals they're trying to police and monitor. Absolutely. So what I want to see is, is that coalition, if I can call it that, having access to the same resources and that being, you know, if you could have the, the private sector bodies uh, willing to step up and, and show good corporate social responsibility by giving access to the kind of resource that, that's available in the private sector, uh, but giving access to the public bodies so that they're on point on message in terms of state-of-the-art technology, state-of-the-art capability and processing. Otherwise, you're, you're playing catch-up. You're 10, 15, 20 years behind, you know? This well, I also wonder if we shouldn't be just applying this. It's like we, we can't put the, the, uh, the, the cat back in the bag. We, we are surveilling. The data is all out there. Isn't this more about just controlling access to that data and, and not worrying about not capturing it? I, I, I think you're right. I think the, the, 
the, the cat is out of the bag, to use your expression. The data is out there. And we've, we've sacrificed a hell of a lot already in return for convenience and functionality. So I think I see it the whole time with, you know, my own kids, for example, their generation, which are the real social media generation, they're the early adopters. They're entirely mobile in their technology, entirely mobile in their, in their processing. But right. they're absolutely devoid of, of an expectation of privacy. I speak to my kids in their age group. They don't, it doesn't occur. Yeah. And in one generation, the, the expectation of privacy is going gonna, is gonna to disappear. And well, we're already seeing it, that a lot of the work we do from a consultancy point of view or from a training point of view, you're actually protecting people from themselves because right. you're protecting people from a, an unconscious um, dissemination of their personal data. Or you're actually trying to remind people, you know, don't do this. It's not right. about the, the sinister or the malicious. It's more about the ignorance. A few years ago, I was sitting with my co-founders at Strangelub, a company I was working in, and we were discussing the fact that you simply can't hire anyone under the age of 25 that doesn't have a picture on Facebook of them throwing up. <laughs> it's like, and, and sort of the answer was, if we are to employ in that age bracket, we have to deal with the fact that this exists. Yeah. Yeah. You just have to get past that. But I mean, there are worse things than having a few beers in college. If, right. if the guy, if the photograph was from last weekend and the guy is in here on Monday morning interviewing, I'd be more concerned. Right. But if the photograph is time stamped by five years ago or 10 years ago while the guy was on spring break, you know what? I'd, I'd get past that very quickly. I'd actually be more concerned if there wasn't anything online about this person. If there were, if the person had no, you know, was so private that there was nothing that, you know, it, it and that's weird to say. Yeah. I know that. But it's almost a it's almost a comfort to know that I can go online and find oh this person is a completely normal smart in person look at all these achievements and blah 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 you know whereas if there's nothing yeah, and, about and them online that's kind of like well now you don't know we're developing that tolerance I think over time certainly speaking with a couple of client organizations who are involved in the recruitment um, the the use of social media to vet and evaluate. And it's, it's way past the point where, you know, if this person's on Facebook, we don't want to talk to them. Right. We're, we're now talking about, okay, what are they saying on Facebook? How are they expressing themselves? Are they using LinkedIn to, to good effect? Um, are they making full use of the functionality or are they just on there as a token gesture with three, three persons on their, in their distribution network and two of them are related? So it's it's about, you know, how are they using the social media? How are they adopting and adapting to the technology? And that's that's becoming our our selection criteria. I feel like now we're starting to look at the same way if you find someone that doesn't have a cell phone. It's like, can I actually work with this person if I can't contact them? Mm. You know, now it's if sure. he's not on the social media, uh, what's up with him? It's weird to say yep. that. Yeah. And, and, but again, I mean, that's, that's a change in, in perspective. It's a change in expectations. And it's also a change in tolerance. Uh, for maybe five years ago, we didn't even have the vocabulary right. to articulate this argument. Well, I think we did, but it was a different set of arguments. You know, there was, there was always a group of people that didn't have a telephone. You're like, really? How do you function? Or, you know, go so far as to say sure. didn't have a car. Like, they, just these sort of yeah. staple elements to functioning in, in a society. But I, I spoke with a guy just recently, a good friend of mine here, who, you know, distinguished himself about seven, eight years ago when I met him first by not having a TV in the house. And uh, we, we met recently and we had a follow-up conversation. And I said, you know, have you, have you stuck with the TV thing? Have you still no TV? And he says, yeah, but we get everything online now. Right. So it, it has become a completely different... It has become a completely different challenge. Well, yes, it's absolutely evolving, but it, and it's... It's just a sort of a recognition that part of this is now your online presence is part of the whole of you that represents a modern person. Hmm. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. You know what time it is? Uh, must be that happy time again. Yep. Time to put the cat back in the bag, swing it around, set it down, and run like hell. <laughs> <laughs> It's that time here as well. I thought there was a time difference between us. <laughs> <laughs> it's time to give away a Dev Express D Experience subscription to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, 
Your next great app starts here. Become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Check it out at devexpress.com. Our buddy, who's our winner? Our winner today is Tom Walker. Congratulations, Tom. He gets the DevExpress D Experience subscription to $2,000 value from our friends at Developer Express. If you don't know what we're talking about, go to .NET Rocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. Every show we give away stuff, great stuff from our sponsors, like the D Experience subscription from DevExpress. And every December, we give away $5,000 worth of stuff, technology, to one lucky member of the fan club. And we'd like to ask our guests, Hugh Jones. And I know you're not really a developer, but if you had $5,000 to spend right now on technological toys, you know, such as they are, I'm sure you use technology in your line of work, what would you buy? I was, I was thinking about this. You gave me a bit of the heads up. I mean, obviously, I, I'm going to encourage you to... Uh to uh, lead by example by going for encryption on on my mobile devices. Um, nice. I really like. We were looking at uh, at South by Southwest recently. I didn't get over it too often, but some of the functionality that was available and some of the new technology, um, it's probably been done to death by your your listeners up to now. But the Google Glass looks really interesting, and not only for me personally, but also just from a from a professional point of view, that that idea of I guess it's it's way up there in terms of the ultimate technology, ultimate mobile uh, access to data. Well, it could be. It's not available. Functionality isn't available just yet over here in Ireland. So, uh, very interested in that. Well, they have still have a few problems um, to solve with Google Glass. Battery is one. I guess um, the the guys who designed what Ray Bans or Wayfarers or something, or the the Italian designer, is working with them to make them look a little more not geeky. And uh, they they're, yeah. they're trying to solve the the usability problem, you know, just like batteries and issues like that. But uh, we think that that uh, glass has promise, definitely. Yeah, you only get about two. I've got one. Yeah. And I'm I've got uh, a set of regular prescription glasses frames coming for it now, so that I can actually not have to wear it on top of my glasses or wear contacts with it. Kind of a pain. Uh, but you only get about two hours of battery life out of it. And if you actually were to turn the video camera on. It would, it would be less than an hour. But just, you know, wearing it around, flipping it on and off for the you, typical things that you use it for, it, it doesn't last very long. Right. Well, that would be one. I mean, I'm obviously looking at the, um, the, the, the new Samsung watch as well. The, uh, yeah. the, the, um, live mobile processing on that. Um, probably upgrade a couple of, certainly get a, Get better Skype accounts, <laughs> as you probably thought, as you saw earlier on from my attempts to stay online while you guys were testing the line. Uh, need to need to uh, a couple of hundred dollars would certainly have to go and be spread liberally among my service providers, and um, move on from the footer to the uh, to the paid accounts. For sure. And I love this. I, you know, what an interesting idea. You know, every year we give away this five grand package. I'd love to do a wearables package. You know, nice. a high performance phone with really yeah. strong Bluetooth, maybe some gear from Fitbit for tracking you, the Scandow tricorder, uh, the, uh, a wearable watch like the Samsung watch and Google Glass together. That's about five grand worth of gear. Yeah, a couple of performance monitors, ped- pedometers, the, um, yeah, the, uh, the live jacket that they have now with the, the built in GPS locator and all the rest of it. Yeah, you definitely need the jacket with the battery pack too, because all that stuff sucks a lot of juice. I'd, I'd hold back about five hundred dollars for um, Mark Zuckerberg mentioned a couple of years ago in an interview. In all seriousness, just the very point that you guys were making earlier on in the program about you know pictures of maybe indiscreet moments being posted on Facebook, and he was asked how do you combat that, and he said, "Well, live your life, have the fun, go to the parties." And then when you're ready to settle down and have a job, and obviously I'm, I'm summarizing horribly here, but it says when you're ready to settle down and apply for a job, go to the local court and change your name by deed poll. Yeah. <laughs> About $500 I'd hold back for that particular program. Wow. But everything else I've spent, spent, spent. Nice. 
All right. I want to jump back into this and actually dig into the EU data protection laws as they would impact developers. I mean, is this something that as a developer, I have to keep in mind working in the EU? Absolutely. Matter of fact, I'm just preparing a presentation for next week for uh, business analysts to help them do their job in compliance. One of the things we're very big on here, and, and you know, it's, it's part of the, the Citorus message, but it, it's certainly not ours. It's been adopted by the, um, the and promulgated by the, the Canadian Data Protection Authorities as well. That's the whole principle. I'm sure you guys have come across it as privacy by design. And that is that as early as possible in the design phase of a project that you would take account not only of every other compliance obligation, but obviously of, of, uh, of data protection legislation as well. So if the functionality you're building touches on or processes or acquires or stores personal data, and by personal data, I mean data relating to living individuals, right. people, human beings, you and me, not, not just you know, spreadsheets and IP and soft line, uh, lines of code, but personally identifiable information. Yeah, so it's the mm-hmm. phrase I was thinking, PII. PII, exactly. Then you need to take those uh, obligations into account. So I, I used a phrase earlier on there in, in the conversation, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Right. right. Um, that's, a regular, that's a regular constraint for developers, for business analysts, even for testers, because, you know, the, the temptations are many and various. Uh, people are willing to give data, therefore the, the assumption by a lot of organizations is, if they're willing to give it, we can take it. And that's, that's not the fundamental principle in, in European legislation. The fundamental principle is, only take the minimum of data that you need for the specific purpose that you have. So it's not about what the individual is willing to give you. It's about what you as an organization are permitted or justified in taking. So if you don't need your cell number, if you don't need the email address, if you don't need the date of birth, and if you can't provide a a lawful justification for gathering that information, very simply, don't gather it. So, you know, you look at your standard database that, that your developer might want to build, and the, the opportunity is there to challenge each item of data and say, why are we gathering this? Why do we need it? So that's only the first rule. That's only the first instance. Then it becomes an issue of the proportionality of, of the security solution. How long do you keep the data? Who has access to it? With whom will you share it? Mm. Uh, are you going to store it on the cloud? Are you going to store it in-house? Um, will you engage third parties to, to process the data on your behalf? And to what extent do you run due diligence against those third parties before they see the data? So the development is certainly the front and center in terms of those considerations. But you can see how it would permeate all stages of the data life cycle um, as, as you continue that line of thinking. Because the reflex as a developer, especially in the land of big data, is capture everything. Sure. And that's, that's what the technology encourages you to do. Right. Not only capture everything, but, but keep it for as long as you want. Right. Because storage, storage has become so cheap. The capacity yep. for storage has become all pervasive. So there's no, there's no, uh, ringing bell that says get rid other than this legislation. And we would argue, you know, it, embedded in that imperative to eventually get rid of the data is actually a risk management structure that says the less data you have on your books or on your system, the less risk you're exposed to. So there is a very real commercial advantage, absolutely to keeping the data as long as you need it for your commercial or operational or or, or number crunching purposes. But it also encourages you to think, okay, at a point in time, this data has gone past the tipping point. This data now represents more of a risk than a benefit to the organization. Right. And, it, and is it by classification of data as well? If PII data is more risky than non-PII data? Well, actually, there's, there's a double distinction of PII. So you have what we tend to refer to as ordinary personal data, which would be stuff like name, address, your photo image, your video footage, your date of birth, maybe your mobile number, your cell number, or your email address. 
And then there's a second category that gets an extra level of protection within legislation. And that's defined as sensitive personal data. So this includes things like your political views, your religious or ideological orientation, your sexual orientation, uh, any information regarding your physical or mental health. So you think about those extra categories right. and you have an additional challenge for organizations to say, you know, why do we need to know somebody's cardiac history? Yeah. You know, like a hospital, a clinic, a therapist, absolutely, you can understand that logic. But, you know, a commercial organization, a bank, etc., they, they would have a harder time justifying it. Here's the thing, though. A lot of that information you don't even have to share. If you have a Facebook account and you post things about your personal life, as long as there's a link somehow back to your Facebook account, that information can be determined from what you post, you know? It can be determined. I fully agree with you. But the, the challenge and the mindset from the European legislation is, you know, coming back, apologies for repetition, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Right. But you exercise the discipline as, as an organization, as well as, as, a, as a decision maker, the individual officers within the organization, to be able to say, look, if we don't need that, it might be interesting, it might be informative, but if we cannot justify having that, and the legislation provides a list of maybe 12, 13 conditions, at least one of which you need to pick. So it could be consent, it could be contractual obligation, it could be lawful necessity, it could be the vital interest of the individual. You just need to pick one of them. But if you work your way down to the end of the list and you can't justify having that item of data with reference to one of those conditions, the legislation says, back away. Don't, don't go there. Just because you can does not mean that you should. Now, what about if I separate the personal identifiable information from the information about the cardiac issue? Because that cardiac issue is interesting all by itself or in combination with other people's heart issues to say, or, you know, I don't actually need to know who this person is other than say they were their gender and age to be able to look sure. at that data and composite. Is it less sensitive then? Like It's no longer personally identifiable. Well, not only is it less sensitive, it actually drops off the radar entirely. Because if the item of data no longer identifies the individual, then the data protection legislation loses interest. There's a very interesting debate, though, going on there because uh, a study in, I believe it was the University of Southern California, recently ran a test against 1,500 records that were being held by a, a, a pharmaceutical research company. And in principle... 12 identifying uh, items of data had been removed from each personal file. Right. Wow. So if you think about name, initials, date of birth, uh, zip code, um, medical conditions, maybe your, your um, Medicare code or, or account number, etc. And to date, that, that university, making use of publicly available information, as well as social media, etc., has been able to re-identify up to about 700 of the 1,500 records. Now, that's a very sobering reality because, you know, in Europe in general, we consider data where you remove three or four identifiers as being anonymized. Right. In the U.S., because there's much more available public information, uh, you could go up to eight, nine, maybe even 12 identifiers being removed to be confident that the data is no longer identifiable. And if this university is coming forward and saying, no, no, we can still, even with 12 removed, we can still, uh, to, to a degree of certainty, we can still re-identify that individual, then, you know, that's a real wake-up call. It's a real sobering moment for a lot of, a lot of sectors. But in principle in Europe, we work off the principle that, uh, you know, if, if you remove so that to any degree of confidence, confidence, you can no longer identify the individual, um, then that, that becomes effectively aggregate or, or statistical information. But as you quite rightly say, it has a value in terms of maybe plotting a trend or plotting the incidence of a particular illness, Sure, but without running the risk of identifying the individual patient. Yeah, I mean, you get into the situation where uh, I want to keep gender, general health profiles, all the stuff that would make that cardiac information relevant. And maybe I even keep a little geolocation data that there's some area they are in. And 
that might get down to granular enough. You're like, that's one of five people now. Yeah. You know, if it gets specific enough. But as, as long as it still doesn't identify, the, the, the legislation is quite specific that, it, the, you know, the challenge is, does the data identify an individual? Does it reference an individual? Could it be construed as being about an individual? So right. There are a number of guidelines available quite publicly on the web as to the criterion of what constitutes personal data. So if you can get past that and anonymize the data to the extent that it no longer compromises or, or poses a threat to the privacy of, of a living individual, then, you know, data protection turns a blind eye. It, it moves on. It's, it's quite an interesting topic at the moment here in Ireland because I know you guys have, have uh, long had the zip code that, that identifies right down to a, a community or electoral area. Yep. Ireland is actually on, on the verge of deploying postcodes over here, something we've never had before, hmm. or at least never had publicly. The Postal Service has been using them for about 10 years, but they haven't been publicly available. So there's a significant initiative underway now, and for reasons best known to them, themselves, the, um, the, the, the scope of the project will identify, so the zip code or postcode will identify and isolate, isolate each dwelling. So it comes right down to an individual house. Wow. So the code is sufficient to identify the individual house. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Now, in terms, in terms of functionality, it's like that an IP appears address to be a house. case of just because we can, we will. Because th- there's no, there's no medical, there's no operational, there's no functional necessity for that level of granularity. Right. It's more about, you know, there's four million, four and a half million people on the islands. There's, I don't know, at a guess, I would say maybe three and a half million dwellings. Um, so let's, let's issue three and a half million numbers rather than one million and keep it at a higher or less granular level. Well, you know, it just may, to me, it just makes an, a, a mailing address more efficient. There's that, but you can be sure that for every individual that's, that's using the efficiency or availing of the efficiency, there are others that are going to be out there profiling and drawing conclusions about the occupants of that house and marrying up that information with other publicly available information to start drawing conclusions about likes and dislikes, misses, conditions, um, you know, affordable income, plausible income, etc. You mean just because it's one number and it's not um, city, you know, a formatted address that can be construed with, a, you know, capitals or non-capitals and has a variety of ways that it can be construed because it's one number, it's easier to deal with, you know, as data. Oh, yeah, don't get me wrong. Again, it's the Luddite in me. It's, it's not about, this isn't a complaint about the functionality. At one level, you know, we're saying absolutely the, the convenience, the, the functionality, the processing capability is is uh, unarguable. But from a privacy point of view, you have to ask the question: Why do we need to go to that level of detail? That's like the, uh, the, the 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 satellite image right down on the street or right down on the freckle at the end of your nose. I mean, what, what level of what level of intrusion is operationally arguable and what level is just that it's intrusive yeah and and part of me feels like that's just in the eye of the beholder too well sure i mean everybody's going to be subjective about it um you know we, we all love to we all love to get online we love to snoop around we love to see you know what the other guy has or what the other lady has or, or whatever but we realize that they, the same lens is pointing at us we get all sorts of snippy about it Hugh, where can we point our listeners for resources if they want to learn more about what you're what you're talking about and what we've talked about here this hour? Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. As you mentioned in the introduction, our company is called Phytorus, that's for sugar, Y T O R U S. But what we're doing is, is pretty much um, interpreting and, and assisting people to understand the European data protection legislation in each of the jurisdictions in the European area. So. If you wanted to go to, for example, the Irish Data Protection Commissioner's website is dataprotection.ie. Uh, the, the European, the UK Commissioner is the Information 
commissioner.co.uk and, and so on. Each of the national uh, jurisdictions within the European area has their own deployment of legislation. Um, but we'd be very happy to take calls. We'd be very happy. We have a, an interactive feature on the website that uh, we'd, we'd, uh, we'd really appreciate and, and any time or anybody who would like to contact us with questions about maybe even from a U.S. point of view, the implications of the European legislation, because quite soon, even if you're based and registered in the U.S., if you're processing the data of European citizens, you're going to need to comply with this legislation. Um, so that's quite a, quite a wake-up call and quite a stretch for a lot of organizations at the moment. Absolutely. That sounds like a show. Hugh, thank you very much for talking to us this hour. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. It's been eye-opening as well, and uh, really like your suggestions. Great, and it's been a pleasure for me too. I really enjoyed the show and everything I've heard about it. Um, Leo, I'd like to give Leo uh, a plug because uh, he, I think, contacted Richard originally and, and uh, suggested that there might be an opportunity to speak. So, Absolutely. Really grateful to him for that. I hope he's listening in when you play. And uh, good luck to everybody out there. Look forward to, uh, to speaking with you at some stage in the future. All right, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.